This podcast is brought to you by Premiere, the UK's leading Christian media organisation. As we approach the end of our financial year, we want to remind you that podcasts like this are only possible due to the generosity of supporters like you. You could help reach millions of people throughout the year through shows just like this. Make your best gift today at premierchristianradio.plus. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Today's edition of The Profile was first broadcast in April 2016. It features our interview with Nabil Qureshi, the Christian apologist who converted from Islam. In the summer of 2016, Nabil was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. Many people around the world prayed for him and followed his journey via his video updates across the following year. Sadly, Nabil lost his battle with cancer, passing away last Saturday, the 16th of September. He leaves behind his wife, Michelle, and young daughter, Aya. We're broadcasting today's show again as a tribute to Nabil and his amazing story, which has touched so many people and continues to do so through his books, videos and online debates. Hello and welcome along to the programme. I'm Justin Brawley, your host for The Profile this week, as we meet Nabil Qureshi. Uh, Nabil is a former Muslim who converted to Christianity. Well, today he's engaged in ministry, seeking to persuade others of the truth of Christianity. His latest book, published by Zondervan, is titled Answering Jihad, A Better Way Forward. He's also the author of other books and uh, it's great to have you on the program today Nabil thank you for joining me thanks for having me Justin we're going to go back to the beginning uh, Nabil because as I mentioned you grew up in a Muslim family grew up in the States I believe as well so uh, do you want to just want to tell us about that what, what life was like as a, as a young Muslim kid in the States well I did do a brief stint in the UK as well my oh, father really? was uh, stationed with the US Navy in uh, Scotland just west of Glasgow so uh, I did learn to speak English in the UK. Um, you lost it all after that. I did, you? yeah. It was kind of uh, difficult in school. I got beat up for being a Pakistani Muslim kid with the Scottish accent. It was uh, not normal for people. <laughs> That's a pretty unusual combination, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> but it was fun. I loved my childhood. Um, I was raised Muslim. My parents had taught me to love Islam. What that meant was praying five times a day, reciting the Quran regularly, embracing an Islamic identity. Uh, my parents had told me that I was an ambassador for Islam because mm. when people see my face, they're going to think there's a Muslim. Right. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter what I'm like. <laughs> uh, people will see me and associate me with Islam. So yeah. they told me to, to love my Islamic identity. Um, and my childhood was a blissful one. My parents loved me. They took care of me. Um, I had a sister. We had toys. We had uh, a good life. Um, so uh, for me, my childhood, uh, and, and I understand it through the lens of Islam, was was peaceful, was joyful, was patriotic. And as far as your faith was concerned, did you feel like you knew God as a as a Muslim? That's not terminology that I would have used. Um, I would have said that I followed God and that God blessed us and that we obeyed him. Um, knowing God is more Christian terminology, okay. um, that, that sort of language of relationship, at least in my experience and the experience mm. of the Muslims around me. Uh, I'm sure there are Muslims, such as Sufi Muslims, who would say otherwise. But generally speaking, it was mm. more obeying God and worshiping him uh, through uh, living life uh, as a good Muslim. And you attended mosque and so on? Yeah, we were very devout. We would travel hours to go to the mosques. So like when we lived here in the UK, we lived in Danoon, but the closest mosque was in Glasgow. Right. Uh, and so we would travel, you know, over the ferry, hour and a half, two hours to get to the mosque every Saturday. Um, and then back in the US, when there wasn't a mosque nearby, we, we were there in the 80s and, and 90s when there weren't that many Muslims mm. in the US, our house would would double as the local mosque and people would right. come to our house and my yeah. dad would lead them in prayer. And, um, so, yeah. So very, very active, very committed. Very much sense. so. So but by the age of five, my mom had taught me how to recite Arabic, and I had recited the entire Quran in Arabic by that time. That's, that's just extraordinary to think. I mean, and it, in a sense, puts many Christians to shame who <laughs> can hardly recite any of the Bible, let alone the whole thing in uh, the original language. <laughs> well, for Muslims, the language is extremely important. Yes. Uh, the Quran is primarily an Arabic book, and if it's in mm. another language, most Muslims don't consider that a translation. Yeah. They consider that an interpretation 
version of the text. And so we had to recite the Arabic. And it didn't really matter if I knew what I was saying. Okay. Usually I didn't. It was just knowing It was the being Arabic. able to recite yeah. it okay. and, and to incur God's blessings like that. But I had yeah. to also, as part of the five daily prayers, have sections of the Quran memorized. Uh, if you hear your father recite the five daily prayers regularly, uh, wherein he's reciting portions of the Quran, you will have portions of the Quran memorized. So by the age of five, I had the last seven chapters of the Quran memorized. Tell us how things changed for you, because you've got this extraordinary story of becoming a Christian. Take your time. What what happened? What were the first inklings of, of this change? Well, it was part and parcel of the pride that I had as a Muslim. I believed Islam was genuinely true. I believed that it was the true monotheism, that Christians who worship the Trinity were polytheists. Mm. Uh, not realizing it, uh, they, they didn't realize that they were worshiping three. Uh, they would say one, but it was actually three, and they didn't know what they were doing. That's what I believed. And so I would extend people the invitation to Islam. I would argue that the Bible isn't reliable. I would argue mm. that Jesus' death on the cross doesn't pay for one's sins, mm. uh, that Jesus never claimed to be God. These kinds of basic Islamic claims, I would argue for them. And what I found was that the average Christian had no response. Mm. And so that made me more confident and bold in presenting Islam to Christians. So it wasn't until I got to my university that I ran into somebody who actually had a response. And okay. In his case, it was defending the Bible. He gave me good reasons to believe the Bible was reliable. So this person was obviously very influential. You had, I think, a number of long-running discussions and debates with him. Uh, you were roommates, is that correct? Well, we met uh, because we were both on the debate team, um, and we were on a tournament together, and we ended up uh, rooming together on those tournaments. Yeah. Um, but after that, I found out he was studying biology. I was doing pre-med, and so we would sign up for classes together. We would study <laughs> together, and in our free time, we would just argue about, right. about the Quran and about the Bible and... Uh, so, yeah, we really did have great long discussions, which lasted over the course of years. I mean, he didn't convince me of anything overnight. It was no. the fact that we had this long-running discussion where we could revisit things that we had discussed before. What would you say was the turning point for you then? The turning point, I would say, was, uh, well, first, we didn't talk about Islam critically right away. The, the, we talked critically about Christianity, and I was quite convinced that the Bible had been altered over time that Jesus never claimed to be God, that the Trinity was unreliable in terms of unviable as a concept even. Mm. Um, and so over the course of these discussions, he was able to show me how he could rely upon the text of mm. Scripture, um, how we could know that the New Testament message has not been changed. And it took me about a year, but I realized that's probably true. But then I asked, where in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God? Now, that's kind of the most important thing mm. for Muslims, mm. uh, because Jesus is a prophet, according to Muslims. He's the Messiah, even, but he's not God. And according to the Quran, he never claimed to be God. Uh, so if we find that the New Testament is reliable, and therein he claims to be God, that's a problem for Muslims. Mm. So first, looking at the Gospel of John, and then moving my way through the synoptics to Mark's Gospel— uh, I realized that Jesus always claimed to be God, all four Gospels. He's God, even before the Gospels were written, if you believe Paul's mm -hmm. writings came first, which most people do. Paul says Jesus is God. The early Christian community uniformly said Jesus is God. And how are these Jews who are so emphatically monotheist saying mm -hmm. this man is God? Uh, it only makes sense if we conclude that Jesus himself claimed to be God. And so when I realized that the historical evidence was in favor of Christianity, that's what got me to bend my knee to God and say, God, can you show me who you are? It wasn't that I was convinced Christianity was true, mm. but that's when the search went from an academic one to a heartfelt one. It opened the door in that sense to, to you actually opening up yourself to the possibility that God might be quite different to the way you would conceive. Exactly. It. Christianity, in my mind, was inconceivable and inviable until mm. I saw the evidence for it. And then my friend David helped me juxtapose the evidence for Christianity with the evidence for Islam mm. because now he had spent years critically investigating the Bible with me. He knew what my standards were when I was <laughs> criticizing the Bible. And he said, okay, Nabil, apply the same standards to Islam. Yeah. If you don't believe the Gospel of John because it comes 65 years after Jesus' death, how much more can you have to criticize yes. the Islamic records because the first biography of Muhammad comes 140 years after mm. his death? And when you actually take the same standards and apply them to both, that's when you start realizing that the case for Christianity is quite strong. So you've had this intellectual search going on. Um, what happened when you, as you say, opened your heart and said, God, I need to know whether 
you are who the Bible says you are. Well, as a Muslim, the way that I had been trained to ask God for guidance was through dreams. Um, we had a special prayer we used to pray called Salat Istikhara, where we'd ask Allah to give us a dream to guide us. Um, and so that's what I started doing. I started asking God to guide me and give me dreams. Um, and through the course of a vision and three dreams, uh, God led me to Scripture through the Bible. Um, and it was in the pages of Scripture that I encountered God. I've often heard this in other parts of the Muslim world when I hear about conversion stories that dreams do often and visions sometimes do seem to be uh, a reasonably frequent way in which people do or part of their conversion story at least so is that because there is this expectation in Islam that, that God will reveal things in dreams? I think so. I think Muslims expect God to reach them that way. The veil has not been torn for Muslims. They don't believe that they commune with God, um, which is probably why they don't use language like knowing God. Mm. Um, and so they can receive revelation only through dreams is uh, what the hadith say. Right. Uh, and so that's what we expected. That's how my sister decided who to marry. That's how my father decided oh. which jobs to take was through dreams. And I think that's why. And anecdotally, I agree with you. Mm. Uh, the majority of former Muslims that I have met, and I've met hundreds, uh, will tell me that it's through dreams that ultimately they were convinced of the truth of Christianity. How much are we starting to see Muslims who are also being convinced in the intellectual way that, that you experienced? Um, we have obviously the rise of the internet these days. It's easier than ever to avail yourself of academic stuff, um, apologetics in one direction or the other. So Muslims and Christians are putting a lot of material out there, if you like. Is that kind of having an impact in terms of challenging Muslims to reconsider their faith? Absolutely, uh, especially in um, India, in the Indian subcontinent. Many, many Muslims have had a stronghold on apologetics for the past century even. Mm. Um, and now that the information is filtering eastward, I've received reports of 10,000, uh, 5,000 in two separate locations, mm. Muslims becoming Christians through um, the apologetics works that uh, I've been blessed to be a part of. Wow. So it's, it's happening, and it's happening quite a bit. I guess we don't maybe hear all that much about these things, because obviously those who do convert, there are, can obviously be issues around their safety. Extremism is something we've come to live with and know in our modern day. Firstly, did this put you in any, any difficulty, your own conversion to Christianity? Uh, you know, w was there resistance from family, from the community that you were part of? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, it has been a very difficult journey with my family. Um, our, our family was rent uh, the moment I became a Christian. And uh, we've been repairing slowly in the past couple of years, but for the seven to eight intervening years, it's been quite difficult. They didn't come to our wedding. Uh, they, wow. they didn't bless any of my decisions in life after becoming mm. a Christian. Um, so That must be very difficult for you at a personal level. It is um, because, you know, they're accusing me of uh, trying to be rebellious and break the family apart and this and that, and I'm just trying to follow God. Mm. Um, so that's it is quite heart-wrenching. Um, yeah. And then at the same time, my family, their reputation um, has, has suffered tremendously because their one son became a Christian. Mm. Um, and so for them, uh, in their social circles, it's been very difficult as well. And you kind of have to live with that. And this is kind of a best-case scenario. Right. You know, other Muslims around the world who become Christian, it's far it, worse. It can be far worse. I, I was going to say, in that sense, for the average Muslim to become a Christian, it, it's a lot different to maybe a, a secular person here in the West sort of deciding to start attending church. There's a genuine cost most of the time, family cost, community cost. <laughs> But it doesn't seem to necessarily be stopping Muslims coming to faith. What's your view on that? Is is is, is it stopping or is, is it in some ways part of the whole process? I, I really do think it's part of the process. If you read Matthew chapter 10, it seems to be assumed that when you become a Christian, you'll end up losing family, you'll end up losing friends, you'll end up losing livelihood, and you'll be persecuted. Um, Matthew 10 says that. Uh, Mark 10 says the same thing. Um, and so I think it's built into the Christian faith, suffering. And I think that's why the fact that we have a suffering God um, who, who bears our burden for us is so mm -hmm. critical. I think he's a God who speaks to this world and to his followers, which is why I think when it comes to Western civilization, um, which has been quite comfortable for the past few hundred years, we end up getting soft Christianity, mm. whereas, uh, you know, bombs going off in Lahore um, mm. and Christians being beheaded on the beaches of Libya, 
there the Christian communities are quite robust, quite strong, because mm. uh, the Christian faith has been meant to survive persecution. Yeah, it, it is humbling in many ways, given the things we sometimes complain about. Uh, we, 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 it's really nothing compared to what many Christians are going through. Um, so tell me what happened next in your journey. I mean, uh, at what point were you able to say, I'm a Christian? I mean, was was there a, a kind of a genuine sort of decision moment that you decided, no, God really has revealed to me now that Jesus is his son? It's actually exactly what we were just talking about. When I read Matthew chapter 10, um, I found that it answered all my questions about uh, what I would have to give up to right. follow Christ. Mm. Um, and he says, uh, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, and it was when encountering that scripture that I said, I don't have any excuses left. And that's when I bent the knee and confessed that Jesus is Lord. What happened after that? Obviously, you've already explained that it's meant a number of difficult years with your family. Did you immediately sort of start to engage yourself in ministry to others, uh, to other Muslims and that kind of thing? I think um, in Psalms it says, uh, he who loves the Lord, the Lord will give him the desires of his heart. I think that text means that if you start pursuing God, God will reshape you, recraft you in your passions. And whereas I was in medical school and I really enjoyed medicine, mm. um, my passion started changing, and I much rather, much preferred um, sharing with people the hope that comes in knowing Christ. And so over the next few years, as I finished medical school, I became more and more convinced that I wanted to go into ministry full-time. Um, and upon graduating, uh, I became a doctor and immediately went into ministry. <laughs> um, so youth ministry for a year, and then I continued studying. Um, I went to Duke University and studied the Gospels and the Quran. Um, and then went to Rice University, studied uh, Sufi and Shia Islam for a bit, mm. uh, as well as Arabic and Greek and Hebrew. And uh, now I'm at Oxford University studying Judaism and Christianity, uh, working towards my doctorate. Mm. And my goal is to, especially in this current climate, to be mm. able to answer people's questions about Islam. People are very concerned about mm. jihad mm. Um, and what is going on in the world. And my hope is as people find the answers, they will not also start distrusting Muslims or hating Muslims. Mm. Uh, I think Islam is inherently the cause for a lot of the jihad that we see, um, but I don't think uh, we should have innocent Muslims bear the brunt of that, uh, of that burden. And so that's what I'm hoping to do now is yes. illuminate those matters yeah. as well as share the gospel with people. How, how are you viewed by the Muslim community? I mean, I think, firstly, there's one issue that, that needs to be acknowledged, which is that the, the branch of Islam you came from is very often seen as unorthodox by many other Muslims, isn't it? You're, and I, I, forgive me if I mispronounce it, Ahmadiyya Muslim by background? Yeah. Um, our sect of Islam was considered uh, unorthodox by most Muslims. Uh, and the reality is a lot of Muslims point the finger at other Muslims and say, you're not really Muslim. Shia, um, Sunni, and so on. Exactly. Yeah. So throughout the Muslim world, there was a lot of finger pointing and really turns out to have to do with demographics. The more widespread and well-known a sect is, the more likely they are to be considered uh, orthodox. Right. So this yeah. is a smaller sect and people point the finger, but in reality, they're just as Muslim as everyone else. As you say, a lot of the violence that is perpetrated is one Muslim against another, perhaps of, a, of another type of Muslim. We had recently over Easter the story of the um, shopkeeper in Glasgow who was killed, who I believe was also an Ahmadiyya Muslim. Yeah, we went to that mosque that he's a part of right. when we lived there in you go. Danoon. Yeah. yeah, so and, we knew his family. From what we can tell from the news reports, um, he had sort of sent Easter greetings and was saying he was pleased to be part of what he called a Christian nation. Um, and someone travelled in order to kill that man. Do you see that this is, I, I don't know, um, how, how normative is this? Is, is this extreme examples or, or what, what's causing one Muslim to go and kill a Muslim of another sect in the UK, you know, travel miles to do it? I'm still hoping to see the investigation results on the causality. I wonder if yeah. the tweet had anything to do with it. Okay. Um, but uh, regardless, um, Ahmadi Muslims are persecuted by other Muslims worldwide. Mm. We've seen their mosques bombed in Lahore just a few years ago, although mm. that's been forgotten by many. Um, their mosques were torn down in Indonesia. Um, so Ahmadi Muslims are persecuted, but that is sort of the common Muslim experience around the world. Muslims are killing other Muslims. Mm. The question is why. I mm. think this is part of the uh, resurgence of an Islamic reformation. 
Muslims are saying we need to follow Allah. The reason why Allah has not blessed the Muslim ummah, the Muslim people in the past hundred years since the fall of the Ottoman Empire, is because Muslims are not practicing Sharia properly. This is the rhetoric that's being used by many of the mujahideen. Mm. Uh, we need to follow Allah more carefully. We need to follow Sharia carefully. Only when we do so will he bless us. And so there's sort of a witch hunt amongst Muslim mm. movements where less orthodox forms of Islam are being persecuted. It all comes back to the traditional teachings and history of Islam. Obviously, you cover this in the book, and we'll talk about that as well in the second part of today's program, um, Answering Jihad. Have you found yourself at the end of things like death threats, you know, because you are a public person and you do public debates, uh, you challenge Islam on a public stage. And quite apart from the fact that you're a convert from Islam to Christianity, does that sort of does that ever give you any worries, let's say, in terms of of having that kind of a role? My first death threat came within two months of becoming a Christian. Wow. Um, and it was one of the most scary because it was on my car. Um, oh, wow. Whereas, what, you know, what, a, a note left on a your A note on, on my car, yeah, uh, informing me of my impending death. Right. Uh, and so um, at the time, I, I was very zealous, and right. I had just read you know, Matthew 10, which mm. said that he who loses my, his life for my sake mm. will find it. You have to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Yeah. So I was like, bring it on. I don't, I don't <laughs> care. You know? um, since then, you know, I've gotten married, and I have sure. a daughter, and, and that, that, makes, changes, that changes things a bit. Um, all the same, though, uh, I think the message has always been the same, yeah. that uh, you can be killed if you're following Jesus, because guess what? Jesus was killed, and you're following him. <laughs> so it could very well happen, and you have to be ready for that. Um, but that said, I have noticed that uh, most of the death threats that come are people just trying to you know, blow off some steam, um, right. and they're not really serious. Of course, it would be a good idea to take them more seriously. But uh, Yeah. I guess in some ways it sounds like you always become used to it. You know, It's not something most people have to endure uh, or face. So like, for example, last April, um, I was going to go to Detroit, and people said, if you come here, we will kill you. Um, and so I had a friend who was a security uh, person look into it, mm. something like that. It, you yeah. know, but generally speaking, the, the average death threat is, is I don't think, a credible concern. Right. What, what causes such hostile reactions? And I don't want to sort of I, – I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that's not what all, the way all Muslims would react, obviously, but some do – um, what what's behind that? Why why a kind of such a visceral sort of reaction to to you and to someone who's converted? I think it's a variety of phenomena mixing together. I don't think we can tease it out and blame one component. So if I were to say, for example, which is true, that uh, in Muhammad's life, he himself, any time he was criticized, for example, by Asma bin Marwan, a breastfeeding mother of five, um, or um, uh, Abu Afaq, I believe, um, they were both. Um, uh, people who had criticized Muhammad. Muhammad ordered them to be assassinated, uh, and, and they were assassinated. Right. Um, I could point to that, but I don't want people to say, oh, it's, these people are just following the hadith, mm. that's why, mm. or they're just following. You know, there's more to it. Mm. Um, there's, there is this cultural, visceral response of self-protection uh, when it comes to people who say things about Islam. Um, uh, throughout the Muslim world, people are very zealous for their faith. And uh, all of that, the culture, the history, the religion, all ties in together to produce this kind of response. I mean, I've heard of people who have converted in which, I know it's not the case in yours, but but where their family members themselves have taken it upon themselves to to, to threaten them with death and, and so on. Um, often these, where it does result in a killing, it's called an honor killing. I mean, is, is the concept of honor in that sense tied up with retaining your Muslim faith and that well, kind of thing? Well, it's, yeah. So, for example, my family, when I became Christian, uh, their reputation was sullied tremendously. Sure. Mm. Um, and they had always worked hard in the mosque to maintain mm. the, most, the utmost um, reputation. And so, let's say my parents were of this more, uh, I would say, uneducated, uncultured mm. type. Mm. Um, where their reaction was, we need to we need to regain our, our honor no matter the mm. cost. They would do that by by killing their child. Mm. Now, in my case, again, my parents were educated; yeah. they were pacifists, as pacifists as Muslims get anyway. Mm. Um, so they would never do that. But in other places in the world, um, yeah, certainly that's what people are trying to do to regain their family's honor by disavowing those who who have uh, who damaged their reputation. Do you find that in any way where there is extremism around the world that there are, there are some Muslims who are actually turning away from that and because of it towards Christianity even? 
So this is one of the um, theses of my of my book, Answering Jihad. Mm. I say that Muslims are today encountering the violent reality of Islam, um, either through ISIS or through the texts of of the Quran or the Hadith. Mm. They're seeing it. Um, played out. They're seeing it laid out, played mm. out. Yeah, mm. they're seeing it right before their eyes. And that leads them to one of three decisions. Uh, they come to a three-pronged fork in the road. Either they will become apathetic. Either they will say, well, I don't want anything to do with this mm. religion. I'll, I'll keep the name Muslim for my family's sake, but I don't want anything to do with this. Yeah. That's one path. Another path is to become apostates. They say, well, if this is what Islam teaches, I want no part of it. And they leave Islam. Mm. That's the path I chose. Uh, but path number three is saying, wow, is this what Islam really teaches? Okay, then I will embrace it. And mm. they're becoming radicalized. And so we're seeing all three of these contingencies grow. Nominal Muslims, apostates, and radical Muslims at a rate unprecedented because I think they are being confronted with the violent reality of Islam. We're going to talk more about that in the next section of today's show. Thank you for being with me today on The Profile, Nabil. Nabil Qureshi is a former Muslim who converted to Christianity. He's been telling us about his story, his faith journey up till now, and uh, we'll be continuing to hear from him and about his latest book published by Zondervan titled Answering Jihad, A Better Way Forward. And join me again in a couple of minutes' time. It's 500 years since Martin Luther hammered home his message that kick-started the Protestant Revolution. In the October edition of Premier Christianity, we ask what exactly did the Reformation do for us, featuring leading voices on both sides of the debate, a dialogue between a Catholic and Protestant on trading places, and a look at the women who influenced the movement. Plus interviews with Christy Wimber on why she chose to close her thriving charismatic church, the family who have instituted tech-free Sundays, and stories of faith behind the bars of an immigration removal centre. Ask for your free sample copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Today's edition of The Profile was first broadcast in April 2016. It features our interview with Nabil Qureshi, the Christian apologist who converted from Islam. In the summer of 2016, Nabil was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. Many people around the world prayed for him and followed his journey via his video updates across the following year. Sadly, Nabil lost his battle with cancer, passing away last Saturday, the 16th of September. He leaves behind his wife, Michelle, and young daughter, Aya. We're broadcasting today's show again as a tribute to Nabil and his amazing story, which has touched so many people and continues to do so through his books, videos and online debates. Welcome back to the second part of today's programme. I'm Justin Briley, your host for The Profile today, brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm the senior editor there, and if you want to find more interviews with Christians in all walks of life, then do go online and ask for a free sample copy, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Well, my guest today on the profile is Nabil Qureshi. He's a former Muslim who converted to Christianity. Today, he's engaged in ministry to other Muslims and indeed people of faith or no faith, seeking to persuade them of the truth of Christianity, just as he was persuaded as a young man. His latest book, published by Zondervan, is titled Answering Jihad, A Better Way Forward. And we were hearing in the first part of today's programme about your own conversion story and the issue of having to deal with threats on your life and that kind of thing. Um, this all ties in in some ways to answering jihad. Uh, as you said, what's often presented to many Muslims today is this sort of um, three-pronged possibility when they see violence perpetrated. Um, they can either, I guess, become, as you say, nominal Muslims, kind of retreat from their faith but still call themselves a Muslim. Uh, they can become an apostate. That might be converting to another faith as you did or perhaps simply abandoning faith altogether. Or they may choose to even embrace this form of Islam as well. I mean, the first thing that I'll hear many people saying, Nabil, at this point is, but mm, ISIS, um, the Taliban, uh, Al-Qaeda, they're all, um, you know, mutant forms of Islam. They're, they don't represent the real thing. That's the message we often hear. And, and so we should regard these people as the extremists, the ones who are twisting the Quran, twisting the true form of Islam. And they perhaps would therefore disagree with, with your, your three options because they'll say, well, well the, the option that, that a Muslim should be following is to, is to get back to the truth of the Quran and not these 
twisted, corrupted versions that are represented by these violent movements. So, so what's your response to that, that these are essentially corrupting the, the Quran and the truth of Islam? Right. So that's exactly what I used to say initially mm. when I encountered uh, the violence in Islam. I said, well, this can't be the true Islam. And I, for years, would push back, arguing, no, this hadith here is unreliable. For example, Muhammad says in Sahih Muslim that he has come to expel the Jews and Christians from the Arabian Peninsula and will not leave any but Muslims. That doesn't sound like the Muhammad I knew. So I said, mm. well, that can't be a reliable tradition. And then another tradition from Sahih Bukhari, which says, I have been ordered to fight people until they testify that there is no God but Allah. And only then will their lives and their property be saved from me. And this is from the most reliable collection of hadith, Sahih Bukhari. And so I said, no, that can't be reliable either. Mm. And as you continue, you find Muhammad beheading multiple hundreds of men at the same time. Um, You see him uh, distributing those men's wives and children into slavery. You see him torturing people for money. You see him... Um, all these atrocities within Muhammad's life Mm. uh, and not always in defensive battles by any means, um, offensively as well. And so after trying to dismiss many of these traditions, I said, well, let me... Let me piece together what's going on here, because if I dismiss all of these violent traditions, then I am basically dismissing the foundations of Islam. This is where I get my picture of Muhammad from. Mm. So looking just at the sources, what is the story? How do I reconstruct what Muhammad's life is like? And what you find when you do that, because there certainly are peaceful passages in the Quran. We Mm. can't ignore that. Um, like chapter 2, verse 256 of the Quran, which says there is no compulsion in religion. Hmm. And that, those are often the ones that are quoted in those response are often to, the ones. to yeah. people. Chapter 109, which says, you know, those of you who disbelieve, believe whatever you want and let us believe what we want. Hmm. Fairly peaceful. Hmm. Uh, one of the ones that's, uh, just I, I can't say this without laughing a bit, but so abused is chapter 5, verse 32 of the Quran, which says, um, if you kill one person, it's as if you kill all of mankind. And if you, sa- if you save a life, it's as if you save all of mankind. Hmm. When you start understanding the context, though, you realize that this is not the ultimate message of Islam. For example, that one verse, chapter Mm. 5, verse 32 of the Quran, says the first part of that verse is, it was told to the Jews. If you kill one person, it's as if you kill all mankind, if you save a life, as if you save all mankind. And we do. We find that in Mm. uh, Tractate Sanhedrin of the Babylonian Talmud. I see. Uh, It's not not a teaching for Muslims. The next verse is the teaching for Muslims, Ah, uh, which says, if anyone creates mischief in the land or strives against Allah or his messenger, crucify him or kill him. Right. A very different message. Exactly. Okay. So you start getting the context. And what you find is in the first 13 years of Muhammad's uh, prophetic career, um, he lives a peaceful life. He has about 100 followers by the end of that time, not that mm. many. Um, certainly doesn't have a fighting force. Most of these people are of humble means, um, and he, he doesn't fight during that time. But then he's given rule over a city. An entire city gives him uh, the, the right to be arbiter. Mm. From that moment until his death, approximately 9 to 10 years, he personally participates in or deputizes 86 battles. Right. So that's an average of nine plus battles a year, and they culminate in intensity until the moment he dies. Chapter nine of the Quran is the last major chapter of the Quran to have been composed, and it is the most expansively violent. This is the one mm. that starts off by saying this is a disavowal of all the treaties we have with polytheists. Chapter 9, verse 5, slay the infidels wherever you find them, lay siege to them, take them captive. Chapter 9, verse 29, fight the Jews and Christians until they pay you the poll tax and they feel subdued. Why? Chapter 9, verse 33, Islam has been made to prevail over every religion. So, I mean, chapter 9 is the most violent. It's the culmination of the Islamic message. It's It's the marching orders that Muhammad leaves Muslims with, which is why when he dies, Muslims conquer one-third of the known world within 150 years. Right. These were the By the sword. By, well, it's, it's, it's complex. Once again, mm. they would tell places, if you do not convert, then you have the option to pay a tax. And if you don't pay that tax, then this we will fight the, you. the jizya Exactly. Tax. Yeah. So it was, it was expanding into territory. The first option mm. people were given was conversion. The second option was paying a tax. And if that didn't happen, then it was, then it right. was by the sword. And do, do you basically see this as effectively the modus operandi of groups like ISIS today? Well, this has been the classical understanding of Islam up until the fall of the Ottoman Empire. No Muslim really ever had qualms with it. It's, it's what it was, and this mm. is the, mes- the means through which Allah had given Muslims dominance around the world. And it wasn't until Muslims had to, had to as a, a culture, flip the script and start playing the defensive, the, the victim mm. Mm. Uh, 
card, which they hadn't done before. Mm. Uh, so, for example, the Crusades. Many Muslims will point to the Crusades now and say, this is another example of, of Christian uh, sort of superiority complex and trying to keep mm. us down and oppressing us. The, the Crusades were never even discussed in Islamic literature. There was no Muslim or Arabic word for Crusades until Christians came up with one in the right. 19th century. Okay. Um, it just wasn't a part of the Islamic mentality mm. until the Ottoman Empire fell, the Islamic world started losing its power, and then these discussions started happening. And that's why you don't hear the phrase, Islam is a religion of peace, until the 20th century. That simply wasn't a phrase. It was never then. said. It was never yeah. thought. That wasn't the way Muslims had thought up until that time. There's a sense in which, then, for you, Islam has always been a territorial religion in that sense. It's about taking land, taking territory, having a sort of influence in that sense. I would say that that's secondary to the fact that Allah intends for Islam to be superior. Right. According to Islam, Muslims are the best of people. The Quran says that. Jews and Christians are the worst of creation. Right. The Quran says that. Islam was made to prevail, chapter 9, verse 33 of the Quran. So Allah wants to bless the Muslim people, make them superior, and because of that, these lands then become yeah. subsumed under Islamic territory. I mean, when I do, as you know, Nabil, I host Unbelievable, the apologetic show of Premier Christian Radio, and we've often had these debates between Christians and Muslims over whether Islam is inherently violent and that kind of thing. Very often the comeback is, but you're looking at texts which are, are intended in a kind of a warfare situation where Islam is having to defend itself against aggressors and so on. This, this is not; These are not texts which we should be importing into today's society, a Western democratic society. It would be absolutely wrong to, to, to sort of see these as valid for our situation. So how do you respond to that? So two things to say briefly to that. Firstly, um, that's why chapter 9 is so useful. It, this was not in a defensive context. Mm. Um, Muslims had conquered the majority of Arabia. Mecca was under no threat. Polytheists were coming to Mecca under truce, a general truce and specific truces. Uh, and all of those got disavowed right at the beginning of chapter 9. The general truce, people were given four months before they would be, start being slaughtered to leave. Um, people who had specific truces, the terms would come to conclusion on those specific terms, um, and then they would be slaughtered. But these weren't aggressors. There was no right. army marching towards Mecca. So at the end uh, of Muhammad's lifetime, it, there was no defense. It was all offense. Mm. Um, and same with the fight the Jews and Christians, chapter 9, verse 29. Mm. Uh, no, no Christians had attacked Muslims. There was no Christian army marching towards Muslims. Uh, far from it. Muhammad had to take his army and move up towards the, the Romans and try to fight a battle of Tabuk. So it's problematic looking at the sources. Mm. But number two, there are Muslims who make it their effort to reinterpret these sources in light of the modern context. So what they're doing is, whether they're explicitly or implicitly doing it, they're departing from the canonical texts of Islam. And I'm not saying that endeavor is illegitimate. Mm. I'm saying if you want to take Islam away from its texts, be my guest. I mm. would love to see that happen. Mm. But let's recognize that that's what you're doing. You're mm. taking Islam away from its texts. And most of these people who've responded to me saying Islam is actually a religion of peace are following 19th century, 18th century men who have intentionally said, we are reforming Islam. Mm. And so if you're doing that, great. But the problem is, ISIS and groups like it are trying to reform Islam yeah. by going back to the texts. And if we ignore that that's what's happening, then we won't be able to address the problem. Mm. I, I mean, it is, it's ironic in a way because Christianity had its own reformation, which was about getting back to the texts, getting back to the Gospels, getting back to the, the true story of grace told there uh, by Jesus. But you're saying it... it when we talk about Islamic reformation, well, there's two ways it could go, either stepping away from the texts or going back towards the texts. Well, actually, Justin, I think if we're using the, the Protestant Reformation as a template, mm. they were going back to the texts. Yes. And so the Islamic Reformation, I think, is ISIS. It is Al-Qaeda. It is Boko Haram. It all comes back from the writings of um, Sayyid Qutb and the starting of the Muslim Brotherhood in 1928. When the Muslim Brotherhood started, again, right after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, right at the end of World War I, 
the Muslim world is looking to the West. They're seeing capitalism reign. They're looking to the East. They're seeing communism reign. They say, why are we losing power? It's because Muslims are pandering to these other societies. Mm. We need Sharia to reign. So mm. let's go back to the Quran. Let's go back to the Hadith. These were the founding principles of the Muslim Brotherhood. Sayyid Qutb was the man who, who sort of intellectually drove the Muslim Brotherhood's principles until he was killed, I would dare say martyred, mm. in the 50s. And um, Osama bin Laden points back to Sayyid Qutb. Mm. He was actually taught by Sayyid Qutb's brother in the universities. Mm. Mm. Um, Boko Haram, the founder of Boko Haram, pointed back to Sayyid Qutb and said, follow this man. Uh, so all of these different groups are very intentionally trying to mm. reform mm. Islam. When you reform uh, religion and go back to its texts, we assume it's going to be peaceful because we think, well, the Christian texts were peaceful. But as we have been discussing now, the Quran and the Hadith are not. What, what should be our response then to Muslims? Um, because obviously there are a range of different responses out there, and we're seeing one of them in the form of the current uh, Republican nomination, uh, Donald Trump. You know, he says, let's ban him from coming into the USA. And he seems to be getting some support for that from some sectors. What's your response to how we, how we deal with the reality of Islam and, uh, and those who are all over the world being being Muslim. Well, this is why I wrote my book, Answering Jihad. I felt that not many people were giving a correct response. You had mm. people on one side of the spectrum saying Islam's a religion of peace and anything that the terrorists are doing is unrelated to Islam, which is just... Naive? It's Yeah, it's naive. I think it's well-intentioned, mm. but it's false. Okay. Um, there's compassion there, but it's based on falsehood and it won't work. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, it's, well, Islam teaches violence, therefore all Muslims are latent threats and inherently violent. And that's false. Mm. Uh, it doesn't take into account what uh, the complexities of personal life and the different expressions of Islam. Mm. And so that's why I spoke up. That's why I wrote this book. Um, I think, at least as Christians, um, that our personal response should be exactly what Jesus tells us, which is to engage Muslims with love, even if it costs us uh, dearly. Mm. but to engage them with love. And I think if we interact with people, for example, on a personal level, and, and this does sound naive to many people, but I want to explain it. People in the West are getting radicalized. Over 5,000 Westerners fighting for ISIS. More British citizens fighting for ISIS, Muslim British citizens fighting for ISIS than fighting for the British Army. So Westerners are getting radicalized. Now, if we embrace them and reach them before they get radicalized, share with them the love and joy of God through the gospel, mm. I think we will preclude radicalization. So on the front end, we will stop it. Am I saying that policy experts should avoid the threat of, of terrorists coming in? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm mm. saying we as Christians should determine how we're going to respond. And if we are going to respond on a personal level by following Christ, it needs to be through love. Do you have any examples of people you've met who, like you, have, in a sense, been turned from either a peaceful or radical form of Islam towards Christ? Uh, many, 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 many. Um, if, if we're leaving it that broad, I've met hundreds right. of, of former Muslims. Um, but even when it comes to uh, radical Muslims, um, I just met one at Hyde Park a few weeks ago who had been radicalized, uh, sent to Saudi Arabia become a sheikh, um, and had been tapped to become a suicide bomber. And his main issue was, well, why are we killing other Muslims? That's what stopped him. It wasn't so much right. killing non-Muslims, it was mm. killing other Muslims. And so as he was thinking about that, um, his mother was a Pentecostal Christian, um, and she was praying for him to encounter Christ, and he did, uh, praying one night. Um, he told me personally that Christ appeared to him, and that's how I ended up becoming a Christian. Wow. Um, but yes, he was being radicalized by encountering the teachings of Islam, and he mm -hmm. was saved from being radicalized by the prayers of his mother, but a Christian. And I think that's how God intends for us to do it. The radicalization of young men in particular is, is a big problem, um, it would appear. And I think many people in the West just don't understand why a young person, and some male or female, would you know, leave the comforts of the UK to go and join ISIS in Syria or, or wherever. Um, I mean, can, can you 
give any explanation. For, well, they for give the explanation, don't they? So yeah. the three girls from Bethnal Green who had yeah. left for Turkey and then through Turkey to Syria to get married to ISIS fighters. What were they saying? Why don't we just listen to what these people are saying? They, they're telling us the reason why we've done this is because this is the true Islam. We've been called to fight for the caliphate. We've been called to support what it actually teaches. And the, her, uh, one of the girls, the, her parents were saying, why won't you come back? And she said to her mom, you don't understand Islam. So this is what they're saying. Um, that is what their reasoning is. And if you look at the recruiting methods, for example, ISIS puts out a magazine called Dabik. Mm. What is Dabik? Why do they title it that? Well, according to Sahih Muslim, Armageddon would start on the field of Dabik. Um, and so what ISIS is trying to do is to usher in the end times. They're, they're making that. This is a location well within Syria. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And they believe that the final showdown, as it were, will take place. Exactly. And that's why it was one of the first places that ISIS took over. Mm. Um, and so when people say, you know, it looks like ISIS is just trying to pick a fight, you know, they're just angering people. The answer is yes, they are. They're trying to usher in the end they're times. They're trying to provoke Armageddon. Exactly. Which is yeah. not necessarily what Al-Qaeda was doing. No. It's not necessarily what other groups were doing, but that is what ISIS is doing. Mm. Um, and so uh, what are they saying in this magazine called mm. Dabik? Well, they're, they're urging zealous Muslims to follow Muhammad. They say, look at this hadith of Muhammad's life. He says that you're supposed to emigrate and, and join the caliphate. Look at this hadith where Muhammad says you're supposed to leave your families. Uh, and by the way, the Quran says that, chapter 9, same chapter we've been talking about, mm. uh, says that you're not supposed to value your brother or sister, or your brother or your father mm. over Muslims. And so these are the exact verses that ISIS is yeah. using to radicalize these young Muslims. They're, they're using their zealousness for their faith. How do you think this all fits into God's ultimate plans. Is there any sense in which we could expect this to have happened? That this 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 form of Islam to arise uh, in the twenty first century for it to be the dominant thing on our news screens week after week, um, Paris, Brussels, and so on. Um, not to mention the, the myriad other places in the Middle East and elsewhere that don't get as many headlines but are equally uh, appalling in terms of atrocities. What's going on for you, I guess, at a spiritual level in, in the way that this is all feeding into God's ultimate purposes? I just would be interested in your thoughts on that. I think uh, you're, you're asking me to theologize. <laughs> and I, I prefer staying in the historical critical realm. But if, I, if you're affording me the opportunity to speculate, yes. I will speculate. Okay. Um, I think God has created us in this world, giving us uh, more than a modicum of free will. Mm. And he watches uh, what we do, uh, knowing full well what we are going to do. Mm. He saves us ahead of time by, mm. by coming into this world and taking our sins upon us. Uh, but at the same time, he does give us that free will. He does give people um, the dignity of being free agents. And so people introduce evil into this world. Mm. Uh, Adam and Eve did it. The people around Noah did it. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah did it. And each time God steps in and fixes, he mm. just continues to mm. step in and mm. fix. Mm. But not totally. He lets us still continue to have our free will. And it's not until we introduce more and more evil until there's a point of no return. For example, if you read Genesis 15, um, God says to Abraham that your descendants, 400 years from now, will receive this land. And the reason why they're not getting it now is because the sin of the Amorites has not yet been fulfilled. In other mm. words, I am waiting for them to get to a point of no return in their sin mm. before I intervene. Mm. And I will intervene in that mm. case through mm. your offspring. Mm. And so I think that's, that's what's happening now. God is allowing people to do what they do. Um, mm. And at a certain point of no return is when he will step in again. But I think this was foretold. If you read Mark mm. 13, if you read mm. Matthew 24, uh, Jesus said that there will be wars, there will be plagues, there will be famines, there'll be false messiahs who would mislead many, even the elect if they could. But uh, to not be swayed, those who stand to the end uh, will, be, will be saved. Do you think that in a way all of this will also herald, as you've seen in, in some instances, Muslims turning to Christ as well? Oh, no question. No question. Again, one of the three-pronged uh, paths yeah. of that road is, uh, is apostasy. Muslims are leaving Islam at tremendous rates. Um, and, and this is happening in the past 14 years. Many more Muslims have left Islam than the previous 1,400 years. Hmm. It's because people can watch what's happening on TV. They can learn what's happening uh, over the Internet. So where did it happen first? Well, we saw after the revolution in Iran... Um, when the clergy took over, that Muslims for a time said, let's let Sharia have a chance. Mm. 
Then in the 90s, we see a mass mass exodus of Muslims going to places like Australia, going to uh, places in Asia and saying, seeing the first Christian they could meet and saying, we've had enough of Islam, share with us what the Christian message is. I have pastor friends in Australia who are simply overwhelmed with the number of Irani Muslims who are coming and converting and accepting Christ because they saw Sharia applied. They didn't like it. Mm. The same thing happened in Egypt in 2012. Mm. Mm. um, We had the Muslim Brotherhood come into power. And then a year later, ousted because they, the, the Egyptians didn't like what they did. Mm. They brought them into power. They said, sure, implement Sharia. And when they saw what they were doing, they said, no, get out. Mm. And so there's this romantic notion of what Sharia is in most Muslims' minds. But when they see it applied, they want no part of it, many of them. Mm. And that's leading lots and lots of Muslims to leave Islam and accept Christ. But the man in the street or the Christian in the street who maybe does interact with a Muslim neighbor, taxi driver, perhaps that Muslim who is on the street doing dawah, uh, Muslim evangelism, very briefly, and obviously there, there's so much that could be said, but, but, but what would be your basic rule for interacting with Muslims, for the Christian who frankly doesn't have nearly the kind of knowledge you have about these issues? So that's a great question. Um, I, I tackle that specific question in um, my video series and my study guide for Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Uh, what should you do? I think the first thing you should ask yourself is, is this person an immigrant or not? Um, okay. Because if, if they're an immigrant from you know, an Eastern society, that means they think differently from Westerners. Okay. We just see the world differently through, yeah. our, through our lenses. If they're a Westerner, just treat them like any other Westerner okay. you would treat. Mm. But if they're an Easterner, it means they're more than likely quite ready to talk about their faith. They're probably quite confident Islam is true and whatever you believe is false. Um, And they're ready to have a discussion with you. They're also probably quite ready to come to your house or for them to invite you to their house. They're ready for relationships. Now, that's beginning to change a little bit because we've created Mm. enclaves in the UK where Mm. where people from other countries come and they they develop their own sort of circles. Uh, But if if, if they're still open, which hopefully they are, Mm. um, I think you'll be able to. Uh, interact with them. And that would be my, my suggestion. Yeah. Just start talking. Start talking yeah. about your faith. Start talking about the joy that Christ has given you um, and interact with them. You don't have to have all the answers, mm. but you need to be a witness. Absolutely. True, true for us all in whatever situation we find ourselves in many ways. Um, it's, it's been a real joy um, talking to you, Nabil, uh, and a real challenge as well, actually, because I'm aware that you have an increasingly high-profile ministry in what you're doing, and, and I'm sure it brings its pressures a lot of the time. How could our listeners uh, pray for you and what you're doing? I appreciate that. Um, I, I Really, the prayers would be for spiritual protection. Physical protection would be great for my family and such, but uh, I think spiritual is more important. Um, I have lots of people praying against me. Um, <laughs> yeah, lots of people praying against me, so your prayers for me would be great. Uh, prayers for wisdom and discernment. Uh, this is such a politically charged environment and atmosphere. Mm. And no matter what you say, people will come at you. Um, so I want people to respond to Muslims with love despite the truth of Islam. That's my goal. Mm. And basically that makes me an enemy to both sides. <laughs> um, so prayers for discernment and wisdom would yeah. be great. You're, you're, you don't sound like uh, the Christian version of Donald Trump or anything like that. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> but the... Uh, it's it as I say it's it's been really good to meet you. Uh, thank you very much for coming in today. Um, so people can get hold of answering jihad, a better way forward. It's uh, published via Zondervan. Where do you see this all heading? Do you, do you think there's going to be an eventual way through this? Or are we just going to live with the reality of terrorism and jihad? the rest of our lives? I think there will be ebbs and flows. Um, jihad will be here to stay. The names will change. ISIS will be gone. Somebody else will come mm. because the cortex of Islam are not going mm. anywhere. Um, but that's why I think we need to move the discussion into an ideological mm. realm because if we ignore that, uh, this will keep happening. So once you know, actual free speech uh, is, is employed and we can actually start talking about faith matters, mm. um, I think we will address this issue better. But until then, we're going to see more and more of, yeah. of these attacks. Well, thanks for being with me on The Profile today, Nabil. If you want to listen back to The Profile, don't forget you can do that at our website, premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. I'm Justin Briley, senior editor of Premier Christianity magazine. And can I uh, interest you also in picking up a copy of the latest mag? And we're going to be featuring Nabil in it as well in due course. Uh, you can find a copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample, a free copy if you just ask for one there. Um, it's been a joy to have you on the programme, Nabil. Uh, God bless you as you go forth in your ministry. And uh, thank you for being with me on the show today. Thanks, Justin. It's been a pleasure. 
I've been Justin Briley with you for The Profile today and we'll be talking to another person in some walk of life, faith and ministry on the show at the same time next week. Coming next, Dave Rose with Premier Playback. <laughs>